Welcome back, everyone, to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on America, China, the Indo-Pacific, and literally the fate of the world. I'm Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I am joined by my partner in crime, which is ironic given that he's a law professor, John Yu of the University of Berkeley. And we are thrilled for today's all Charles W. Kingsfield episode of the Pacific Century because we are going to have dueling lawyers on today. We are joined by my old friend, James Kraska. James is the chair and Charles H. Stockton Professor of International Maritime Law at the U.S. Naval War College. Uh, he is also a visiting professor of law at Harvard Law School. He is the author of a raft of books that would force me to go to the next web page to read, so I will not do that. Uh, but he is widely recognized as one of the country's preeminent, if not the preeminent, experts on maritime law and international maritime law. But most importantly, James and I have known each other for over 30 years now, when he was in law school and I was in graduate school. So James, it is a pleasure to have you with us and welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Misha. It's wonderful to be on. Well, the reason we asked you on, in addition to uh, the fact that you are always uh, an entertaining person to talk to with an incredibly deep fund of knowledge, you work on China, you work on uh, obviously maritime law, you work on U.S. policy, but in particular uh, is an article that you wrote uh, last week or uh, early this week, it might have been, um, which had a very provocative title. Uh, it was at War on the Rocks, and the title is... China is legally responsible for COVID-19 damage, and claims could be in the trillions. Now, there's been a lot, uh, as you know, James, going back and forth about China's culpability or lack of. Beijing, of course, has waged an incredible and unfortunately rather successful global propaganda campaign to shift attention away from its own culpability for this outbreak and, and uh, its malfeasance in dealing with it. But there haven't been nearly as many, if any, arguments that China could be held legally responsible. So could you encapsulate that for us? Just walk us through uh, the basis of your argument, and then we're going to unleash the legal eagle himself, John Yu, for a discussion with you on that. Sure, thank you. Uh, sure, yeah, it's very simple, um, which is that my argument is that China bears responsibility within the law of state responsibility for the malfeasance uh, that, uh, that it committed and the, the consequences, the, the material or the tangible consequences that flow from that. And so it's not an entirely original argument because uh, there's cases that go back more than 100 or 130 years or so that states should not uh, commit acts that create nuisance or environmental harm or some sort of disturbance uh, outside of their borders in international law, and that they they bear responsibility for that. And I think people are people are on board with 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 the case law, but when you get to something that's of this magnitude, uh, there seems to be sort of an unwillingness to hold China accountable. And uh, international law scholars and the International Law Commission actually developed 
a instrument on the law of state responsibility. These are the uh, the top legal minds in the world that said that states are responsible for their wrongful acts and that they have to make reparations for the damages that naturally flow from from that. Uh, and my view is that if international law is to be meaningful, then it should be meaningful in the most important circumstances, uh, which you know we find ourselves here. So just very quickly on that, because part of the argument that I, I read uh, in your piece uh, is very important about it goes right to this propaganda campaign. I mean, China, of course, is claiming that it was it's been successful in uh, getting rid of covid and now reopening the country. Uh, but you actually walk through in the article the ways in which China was obligated to be sharing information much earlier, uh, to be accepting help much earlier. And and so it's, it's an argument not simply, of course, about the legal culpability, which it is, but but actually about about governance within China. And, and this, this propaganda campaign really comes down to which system is better, the Chinese authoritarian system or our system. So it has to do with legal obligations. As I say in the article, that everybody realizes that it was absolutely a moral fail failure and a global calamity uh, that the Chinese Communist Party has, uh, has created. But it's also that China had a legal duty that is an obligation, not just sort of an optional uh, moral obligation, but a legal obligation under an international instrument, the international health regulations that they have signed up for, that they willingly signed up to agree to, which, by the way, were tightened after their failure to disclose information uh, during the SARS uh, uh, episode about 20 years ago. And so these tight these tighter obligations require that states be forthcoming and volunteer all of the information and be entirely transparent. And there's uh, more and more uh, reporting and evidence that China, in, rather than being transparent and forthcoming, actually hid the truth. Uh, for example, China didn't tell the World Health Organization that, uh, that it had uh, healthcare providers that were uh, that were exposed to the coronavirus, the COVID virus, and uh, had become sick. And of course, that information would be key for the WHO to galvanize the efforts to combat uh, this this disease. And so that's just one example. Other examples, they uh, apparently have destroyed samples that would have been used by the WHO and the Center for Disease Control and, and other uh, investigators to try to better understand how this virus transmits and how it propagates. So these are a breach of a legal duty and uh, there's legal consequences that flow from from that, just like there would be in a civil law system or a criminal law system. So let's that's great. Let's bring John in because I know John. Uh, you know his entire career has been, or much of it has been, focused on international law, and he he's also done that at the highest levels of the White House. John, what's your take on on James's argument, and and what do you think will actually happen from calls to get China to to accept responsibility and be held accountable for the crisis? Well, first, let me say uh, 
Jim, Jim, thanks so much for uh, joining our podcast, and it's a real uh, pleasure. Uh, I don't think we've ever met in person, but I really I've admired your work from afar. And uh, there's um, not a huge group of uh, national security law scholars, and uh, you're certainly one of the leaders. There's a lot more working on it now than used to work 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but it's great to have you on our podcast. Um, so, Misha, you can go Thank away you. and go make coffee or something now while the, the big boys talk about law. <laughs> That's what I hear every podcast. Why is this different from the other ones? <laughs> Actually, usually this is a role reversal. Usually you're going on about medieval Chinese history and I'm going and making <laughs> coffee. And so I, I so I think it's, it's really this is a really interesting uh, problem because I share uh, your view that China did something wrong. Uh, the interesting thing to me is what the remedies are. So, you know, we could say they did something morally wrong, right? but I think everyone agrees with that by, you know, uh, concealing the outbreak, continuing to conceal the outbreak and probably the numbers of how many people are being harmed, not warning the world soon enough, sort of, you know, at the, uh, just like they did with SARS. So the interesting question is the legal, whether there's a legal norm violated and what the remedy is. So, uh, the, the, so the, you point to two in your article. One is uh, the W, the World Health Organization's international health regulations, which you know, give China the duty to right report and cooperate, uh, tell the world what's going on. Uh, so the one thing I'm not sure about is what are the remedies for violating those regulations. So I thought uh, I could be wrong with this, but I thought the WHO has kind of its own um, system for resolving disputes. So if we think they did, in fact, violate their obligations, uh, we could go to the WHO and uh, sort of trigger that. Uh, so the interesting question to me is what if those dispute rec resolution mechanisms are too weak? Whether uh, What do we do if we don't think they're going to be fair? Are we allowed to act uh, beyond those, or are we limited to only acting through the WHO? Yes. So there, there is a dispute mechanism in the WHO, in the international health regulations. Uh, but I would say that this is uh, that that was a legal duty that was breached. It's also a customary. Uh, if those are customary law, it's a customary duty. So I wouldn't say that that then forecloses any other remedy for uh, state responsibility. In other words, I don't think that the, the IHR as a treaty would swallow the law of state responsibility or displace the law of state responsibility. Hmm. Yes, I mean, I agree with you. That's why I sort of thought – So I could see China making that argument, but I agree with you. I think that signing on to that doesn't limit sort of broader legal obligations. So here's then the – Issue with the second, you know, the your broader argument, which I quite agree with in terms of uh, that China did something wrong. The, again, the interesting thing is what you're allowed to do about it. So, if China did something wrong, take for example, well, the immediate thing that brought to mind was it seems to me China does lots of things <laughs> that are wrong, and they. Uh, in a way, what they're doing is they are um, accelerating their economic development. They are uh, acting in a dictatorial, authoritarian way internally. And these impose a lot of negative externalities and harms on the rest of the world. Uh, so 
you know, you go to Japan, you go to Korea, you go Asia, there's huge amounts of pollution pouring out of China all the time. And essentially what they're doing is what uh, any they're not internalizing the costs of their actions. They're inflicting it on the countries around them. Uh, but Japan, Korea, all these countries that suffer pollution, they don't uh, take these kinds of steps. And maybe that's just a political choice or maybe it's a legal choice. Uh, you know, why couldn't they make the same argument you're making here? Uh, if you're Korea, you're Japan, you say, look, China is deliberately poisoning our air, poisoning our water. Uh, it's wrong. It's a breach of international obligation. They're essentially inflicting health harms on our population. But you don't see countries uh, responding to Chinese pollution or these other external harms. Uh, you know, we could talk about you know sending illegal drugs into the United States. You know, all kinds of things. But generally, we don't uh, go as far as you're recommending. We go on. Uh, this question of the coronavirus. And so is that really a political problem or is it really a legal problem that countries aren't responding in the way you've recommended in the past? Oh, thank you. So, John, my view is that uh, we have the legal instruments available. People like to say that there's not a legal remedy because it sort of gets get, gets us in the West and in the U.S., kind of off the hook uh, to, to say our hands are tied. Uh, and it particularly comes, in, in my view, from a lot of the promoters of international law, the very people that are most invested in generating norms of international law and that have very aspirational goals for a liberal international order, seem to want to walk away when the discussion concerns compliance. And that's what uh, that's what I'd like to to try to do more of. And the examples that you raise are um, are, are perfect uh, perfect in this regard. What I would suggest is that there is more of a a lack of political will rather than uh, legal impediments. And in effect, China has deterred. The, the its neighbors as well as the United States from making these sorts of arguments. And you'll notice that uh, that the U.S. Has, has somewhat in recent years lost its reticence to, to make these arguments in terms of states uh, uh, such as North Korea or Iran or even Russia as a major power. And yet um, China has gotten a pass. And in my view, it's because they've been very effective at weaponizing uh, uh, Western guilt over colonialism uh, and uh, using a variety of carrots and sticks to mine. And so when we think about deterrence, particularly if we grew up in the Cold War, we very much think in terms of is the United States deterring other states. And in this case, I think that China has effectively deterred the United States and is deterring European countries from taking steps as well as uh, its neighbors. One other example, entirely unrelated to the sort of greater political issues that we're talking about, why is it that, for example, the European Union is willing to uh, uh, take major steps against illegal fishing against, say, Thailand, for example, to the point where Thai officials and the Royal Thai Navy are are heavily focused 
on suppressing their illegal fishing because they're, they fear that the European market will be foreclosed. And yet they don't lift a finger for other violators, in particular China, which is the, the world's most egregious um, illegal fishing nation in the world. And so it's, it's this sort of dynamic. Uh, you know, why is it that there are sanctions that have crippled the Russian economy? over things that have been um, uh, uh, over wrongful acts that it's done. And yet Chinese banks and Chinese commerce continues to flow as if nothing, nothing has gone on. Nothing is, is changed in that regard. And so that's, that's why I wrote the piece is to uh, try to get us to think about uh, what's possible and treating China like, like a normal country, like everybody else and not giving China a pass. Yeah, and the you know the question always with I, I think you're completely right first in your diagnosis of some of the problems of international law that a lot of um, international law lawyers or scholars even government officials treat international law more like an aspirational document full of uh, promises they have no intention of fulfilling, and as you say they kind of run for the hills when you talk about. Well, what do we really have to do? And I, I quite agree with your second point, which is, as I take it, is um, because uh, we don't see international law enforced, that's not necessarily a legal problem. It might just be a political problem, just in the way, you know, people in the United States, you know, they suffer legal harms with some, for a lot of reasons. They may not bring lawsuits. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, defendants settle and pay people off not to sue, which is kind of like what you're describing. Maybe China doesn't get sued. People don't press their claims because China is essentially paying them off not to. I think the your area is a great example. The law of the sea, uh, the Philippines, right, originally sued China about the South China Seas, and then they've kind of dropped it because China's pouring money into the Philippines now. Um, so I quite agree with you. We shouldn't take them. The thing that, I, the last thing I just uh, pointed question I would make about your article here is that in a way your article to me um, comes out in the same place as a realist would. So you posted it on War on the Rocks, which I think take it as a realist. I think of it as a realist website. By realist, I mean these are people who are kind of like George Kennan's view of American diplomacy that international law is just kind of a moral hope, and uh, but it's really power politics that determine uh, the you know, global politics. And so a realist would say, oh, put this international law aside, we should do something to China to deter them in the future and force or co compel them to share information like this again. And in a way, you're saying international law here, because it finds China to be at fault, allows nations to engage in a variety of self-help measures, uh, which you say are essentially on a same scale as the harm that China inflicted on all of us in the world, which we're talking, you know, it's trillions of dollars, really. And I mean, the United States uh, GDP is $2 trillion a month, and if we're losing 60%, 70% of our economic activity, uh, you know, the, the costs to the world are in the trillions. So you're essentially coming out with a international law uh, argument, it seems to me, that would allow that would be quite uh, harmonious with what a realist would want to do, which is let's do a lot of self-help things against China, either to compensate ourselves for the harms they've inflicted on us and also to force them in the future to cooperate next time there's a pandemic like this that starts there. Am I reading you right? I, I think exactly. Uh, um, look, states are entitled 
entitled under the law of state responsibility to impose countermeasures to uh, either induce a party to stop violating uh, a, a international, international law or to secure their remedies. In this case, the, the reparations or uh, whatever form of restitution or compensation or satisfaction that the U.S. and other countries are owed. And so the analogy would be uh, that we, we do have the U.N. Security Council that can use force on behalf of the global community, but that doesn't uh, prevent states from defending themselves, uh, inherent their inherent right of self-defense. And so states can act through self-help to take measures. In the case of the law of state responsibility, it provides a legal mechanism for the United States to suspend its own legal obligations owed to China. And those could be obligations uh, to respect the sovereignty of China, uh, or uh, obligations due under the World Trade Organization, or, or many others. I mean, there's sort of limitless uh, things that the United States could do uh, so long as they're proportionate to what China has done. And so that's that's what uh, what I'm advocating. It is a realist perspective, and that's uh, also, you're right, why I chose to approach War on the Rocks with this piece, uh, because I believe that international law is not the tail wagging the dog of international relations. It's one element of international affairs. It's important, and uh, uh, but it it doesn't necessarily always control everything. Uh, it sits astride uh, international economic relations and social and political and cultural ties and all of the rest. And so uh, I hope that policymakers recognize that international law is both a mechanism that can be um, used to to uh, to protect or to vindicate our rights, and also that there is uh, meaningful uh, compliance that can be imposed in international law. So here's here's an idea I've had. I read through your remedies, which seem kind of uh, fun, creative. You know, like uh, reverse or suspend their entry into the WTO of China, cut Chinese air travel off. You know, start attacking the firewall. But suppose we went even farther, uh, you know, more aggressively. Uh, some of these you know, might require, uh, you know, the United States or other countries to sort of use international law in an affirmative way. But I, I thought. Why not compare this to things that we've done in the past to, say, Cuba, other countries? Why don't we say the United States and other countries in the world, like Italy especially, should just go and seize all Chinese-owned assets in the country? Uh, you know, we did this with Cuba, for example, after the Cuban Revolution. Uh, there were a lot of people who had claims against Cuba, and we tried to satisfy a lot of them with – now the Cuban government didn't have a lot of assets in the United States. But there are these famous cases uh, that have gone to the Supreme Court uh, about this involving the Act of State Doctrine and stuff that reflect what we did. So what about this? Suppose – you, you know, we went to Italy and we said, oh, you, right now, Italy and the United States are the countries suffering the most from the coronavirus. We're just going to seize the assets of any, not just the Chinese government, but any state-owned enterprise. 
And we're going to use those to satisfy, you know, to pay the bill that we would otherwise give China. You know, if we're suffering hundreds of millions of dollars of losses a week in the United States, you know, businesses, you know, that are shut down, well, then come file claim with the United States government. We'll pay it out of all the money we've just seized. Uh, you know, if you're Italy, especially, right, Italy and uh, Greece, if I recall, are the two European countries that China has tried to send a lot of its Belt and Road Initiative money towards. Why not just Greece, go Greece, go seize the Port of Piraeus back. You know, Italy, take, you know, just keep the money and then say, you know, let China sue them and say, oh, we're, you're violating international law for seizing our property. And then, right, these countries could say, yeah, but the reason we're doing it is because we're owed compensation under Kraska's, look at Kraska's article, tells us why we're owed compensation. And we're, uh, you know, maybe that's the only kind of thing that would get the Chinese government's attention and teach it a lesson that, you know, next time, you know, that there's a cost to acting this way. It's not just political costs of, you know, dollars and cents costs. And you're going to keep doing it to you the more you refuse to cooperate and share information about these health threats that are coming out of your country. Absolutely. I think it's, uh, I, I mean, the European Union ought to be acting in concert uh, on this. And it goes even beyond that, which is uh, the, just the viability of the Communist Party of China to control the information within the country. Uh, remember, the United States and other countries would be permitted under the law of countermeasures to suspend their legal obligation to recognize the sovereignty of China with regard to the, the flow of information over the internet, communications, uh, radio, television. Uh, we did this during the Cold War with the Voice of America. It was relatively uncontroversial. Um, but again, we've been so sort of conditioned to give China a pass that that now if you say that there's sort of audible gasps uh, you know why not broadcast the truth into uh, China uh, as a countermeasure um, why not uh, 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 chronicle the the missteps the malfeasance and the misdeeds and the the, the oppression of the Chinese people by the Communist Party uh, these are all uh, potential countermeasures and uh, states ought to have an honest conversation about uh, what to do in order to secure the reparations that they're due for this event really it should have happened a long time ago about numerous other violations of international law that China has done uh, the the theft of 100 million uh, records of um of Americans with security clearances that were siphoned out of the uh, uh, out of the OMB computers, for example. So, you know, the list goes on and on. And uh, this is just sort of the latest example and the one with the greatest uh, uh, the greatest impact. And it ought to get us to think uh, of what remedies we have available. Let's leverage the existing law of state responsibility and uh, and, and finally impose costs uh, to ensure compliance and to, uh, and to fulfill the debt that the United States and indeed uh, some 150 other countries are owed. I could totally see Trump going saying, here's my bill, right? Just going to pay. Here's a bill. <laughs> now you have to pay. You know, the only thing I would, you know, is being in, in the, formally in the government, I think, I, I'm sure 
uh, James has this view too, would be the only thing our government would be worried about is we wouldn't want the same things being done to us. <laughs> so, you know, they would worry about, you know, uh, Vietnam or Iraq giving us a bill for, uh, you know, wars that they thought were illegal and asking for damages. Although we've put a lot of money, I think, into both uh, countries, but the, you know, that would be, the, that's often the thing I think that restrains the United States is that we yeah. worry about what if these principles were turned around on us. But I think this has been such an incredible cost on the world and such so peculiarly um, clear who's responsible uh, that it's not I, – I would hope our officials weren't deterred by taking some of these measures and taking some of these measures. Yeah, this is a fairly clear-cut case. I mean, if, if you take something like the Vietnam War or, say, the Iraq War, it, was that an internationally wrongful act? It's, it's uh, much more where reasonable people could disagree. The Iraq War, for example— uh, there's arguments that it was, you know, a lawful a war that was lawful in international law. That there were UN Security Council resolutions that that never expired and that were being leveraged. Um, and maybe you could make the opposite argument. Uh, but I think this is a fairly clear cut uh, violation of standing uh, treaty that China had a duty to fulfill. And, that, and they failed to fulfill it. And there's not really a lot of controversy, I think, about that. I mean, even the people in China uh, apparently are sort of uh, at great cost to themselves um, recognizing this and, and, um, and, and, and uh, challenging the bureaucracy and the Communist Party over their, uh, um, their cover-ups domestically. Yeah, it's actually. Uh, and this is the actually, Misha. This is the last thing I'll say. <laughs> this is actually kind of an interesting question that takes me back to you know first year law school. You started this, Misha. You mentioned Kingsfield, so it's all your fault getting us thinking about first year <laughs> law school. But it's you know this is in a way this is like a <laughs> this is like a tour, right? This is very interesting. So you know you and it's so our legal system has struggled for hundreds of years to figure out who should pay when there's an accident or there, or even a deliberate accident like this, a, what we call a tort. And so uh, you know, some people have said the fancy sort of most liberal scholars say you put the, you put the financial liability on the person, uh, what they call it the cheapest cost avoider, right? The person who could uh, avoid the accident, stop it from ever happening, has the most information, um, and then they should pay because they're the ones who are really choosing, do I continue to engage in my harmful activity and pay the damages, or do I take the steps to stop it from ever happening? And uh, so if you were looking at this just as a simple uh, question of accidents, China is totally responsible because think about how much they could save the world if they would just take steps, which would not cost them all that much. You know, so the one thing we're talking about is forcing them to pay for all the damages. The other, the other, you know, the flip side is, you know, maybe we should also give them some help and money to stop this from happening in the future. Uh, you know, and then and figuring out accidents is part compensating for the past, but it's also deterring people so they do the right thing in the future. And that's also part of the hard thing of this is how do we force China to you know, put into effect better public health systems, or at the very least, as you say, uh, James, 
let the WHO, let American experts come in immediately when something like this starts so that they can stop it from spreading. Uh, and that's hard to figure out given the authoritarian nature of China. Okay, now I'm done, Misha. Sorry for going on at the end about first-year law well, school. James, it really I, totally reminds me of that. <laughs> James, I've never heard anyone reduce John to silence, even for a few seconds. So that was, that was an extraordinary – uh, coup de grace. Um, the the only two points I would mention that I think really you guys brought up that that should be discussed more, talked about more. Um, first of uh, of course, uh, when you got to that point, John, about saying you don't want this turned on us, we know that the Chinese are masters of lawfare. Uh, J- James has talked a lot about it, written about it. You know, using things like the um, uh, the law of the sea against. Uh, not only the United States, but against other other nations. And so I would fully expect that if if we went down this road, China would, would immediately leap on with something that would entangle us in the courts over something they would claim that, that we did, that we were uh, legally responsible for. I think that's that's the big thing. And then but the second thing then goes back to exactly why China is conducting this global propaganda campaign. John, you said, how do we get them to change? And it's exactly to allow them not to have to change, that they have whitewashed history, they have rewritten the truth, they have used enablers and fellow travelers like the WHO, uh, like others uh, in the United States who have been parroting the line that they take their hat off to China or uh, they think we can learn lessons from China. Uh, this this is exactly what uh, what Beijing wants to hear, and therefore it's to get them to, to face no repercussions for it. But James has done, I think, a signal service and, you know, breaching the wall uh, of silence surrounding this. And you know, congratulations on the article, James. It is uh, fantastic to have you with us and talk with us. And hopefully we'll be able to have you back and, and maybe we'll do something that's really more focused directly on maritime international law next time. Thank you very much, Misha. And thank you, uh, Professor John Yu. It's an honor to be able to talk to both of you today. All right. We'll talk to you soon, James. Take care. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for joining us. Actually, the discussion we had with James is a nice transition to your piece because uh, it puts it in the broader context, uh, how to understand why we're having so much trouble with China, why they're acting this way when it comes to this public health problem. Because uh, you could sit there and go, if China wants to become a responsible a global actor, if they want to be part of the trading system, if they want to be uh, have the you know good relations that they've had to date with the United States and the rest of the world, why would they act this way? Why would they deliberately uh, allow this terrible virus to spread to the rest of the world, again, where it's imposing hundreds of billions of costs, dollars and costs in the United States, similar amounts on in Europe and the rest of the and the rest of what pretty you know very every month trillions of dollars in losses to the whole world, and why would they do uh, such a thing? A and then what should we do next? So, Misha, you, your article, you why don't you tell us about it? But you put it in the context of uh, this is understandable as another step in basically what's a new cold war between the United States and China. 
Yeah, John, I, I've been very hesitant to call what's been happening over the past uh, few years a Cold War. I think as a historian, you know, I'm, I'm uh, uh, again, reticent to do things uh, that have deep historical resonances that really have um, uh, specific conditions and environments and times that cause them to become something that we then label. And so to say simply, well, this is a new Cold War, uh, I think, uh, though I understood it, was something I at least wasn't as, as comfortable with. But that said, uh, I, I'm having a very hard time, and I think many are, um, understanding how we go forward with any fiction other than that we have an openly adversarial relationship with China. Now, I know that people uh, will read today that President Trump talked with uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping that they agreed to fight this together. And look, those are those are diplomatic niceties and and the like. But given what you and James talked about, the malfeasance of of Beijing, it's undermining actually of global governance, regardless of how you feel about things like the UN, what it did undermined the ability of states to act openly, freely in their own best interests, the cover up both at home and abroad, the propaganda war, and specifically the blaming of the United States for this, seems to me to have Wait, ripped can I the ask mask you one off. Quick question. Yeah. I mean, this, this yeah. pretend claiming that this was brought to China by the U.S. Army. I, I mean, do they actually think anyone would believe that? Even anyone in China? I mean, it seems so ludicrous. You know, it's just so crazed and it, you know, it, just so it, patently it, untrue. Like you could say, oh, we did our best. We we made mistakes, right? You could say, oh, we made mistakes or it's the fault of the lower officials. But do they really think people believe, you know, that does remind you of sort of the crazy things the Russians would say during the Cold War too. No, exactly right. And that's why I think we're there. And, and it doesn't matter whether they believe it or think anyone else will believe it. It's a red herring that detracts people from saying, here's China's culpability, because then everybody's talking about, oh, look at the U.S. and what the U.S. is saying. It's the China virus or this or that. But it seems to me that this has really revealed our adversarial relationship and the world's adversarial relationship with the Communist Party and, and the Chinese Party state, the Leninist Party state. I mean, I am incensed at the calls by American elites that we need to figure out how to work with China on this. I mean, are you kidding me? Well, we're in this because of China. We're in this and because of the people of China, because of the government, because of Xi Jinping, because they decided that it was more important to cover it up and cover their rear end than do all the things that James lays out in his article, which they were morally and, it turns out, legally obligated to do. So these, these Pollyanna-ish calls that what we have to do now is, is, is focus together and, and work together on this by people who should know better that the very existence of the Communist Party is dependent on not working with other states and not telling the truth and not being open, uh, that it, it, it worries me deeply, I mean truly deeply, that we have had the first pandemic in a century, life has been for at least a period unalterably changed. We have no idea about the economic effects of this. And people are still living in cloud cuckoo land as if China is some sort of responsible partner that you can trust them. And boy, whatever they tell you, they're really doing. I, I just I think it is it is extraordinarily dangerous. And it really does get us both in terms of the actions of Beijing, but also now the actions of, of those in America who are who are not only buying but repeating this line put us in 
an existential struggle, an existential struggle for the type of global system that to one degree or another we have supported and felt has been helpful for us. Because if China gets away from this, then there will be no accountability. Uh, we will see the suborning of international organizations like the World Health Organization. We will see a level of elite capture that we could not even have imagined. Uh, and we will see the Communist Party government get out of this even more strongly. With uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Misha Austin. Angry. He's angry. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm mad as oh, hell, you and I'm not going to stand for it anymore. I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> Go to your windows. Open them up. No, yeah, I'm, I'm, well, Howard, I'm Howard Deal, man. So if I don't show up for the next podcast, you'll know why. No, this is this is interesting because um, in a way what you're saying, I think, is if we're going to you know, give it a parallel to the first Cold War. Uh, what we're experiencing now is kind of like the Berlin airlift moment. Right? This is kind of the time. You know, if you remember, go back and look at the Cold War. Uh, you know, it wasn't like 1945. We all of a sudden decided we would have to engage in this long-term struggle. It was a lot of things that happened between 1945 and 1948-49. Uh, you know, there was. Uh, the uh, aid to Greece and Turkey, you know, the Marshall Plan, the Berlin Airlift, and you know, uh, George Kennan's telegram and NSC 60. It was a whole bunch of things, but it took years, not a lot, not as long as it's taken us. But in a way, you're saying this is like the Berlin Airlift moment when everybody realizes this is the beginning of cold. We can't be friends with China just like the way we couldn't be friends with the Soviet Union. There's something fundamentally different about their regime that's going to cause us to have to wage a kind of containment struggle in the same way we did with them. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying I'm worried that it's actually no one's recognizing it as a Berlin crisis moment. That That's that's what worries Not enough. Not enough people. I mean, look, the elites set the tone uh, in this country, rightly or wrongly. And too many of them are are repeating the the lies of the Communist Party government. I mean, you know, I, I just don't see how it's any clearer. Um, there, the timelines are out. Um, there was a good one uh, at National Review. I forget. Uh, not right now, I'm forgetting who had it. Um, might have been Jim Garrity. I can't remember, but someone at National Review. I just didn't pull it up. Had a had a great timeline. Uh, there was, believe it or not, an outstanding piece on Slate that said you don't have to uh, be buying into the the Chinese. Um, yeah, yeah, Jim propaganda. Had, it just went. Through, yeah, it just went through the dates. Like this happened. Yeah, this is what they said. This happened. This is what. But they it's said. clear. Yeah, the just, point is, it's out there, John. It's not hidden. It's all public. What, yeah. what happened is public, and yet you still have people saying that the there should be no onus on China. And in fact, we have to learn from them. It is it is outrageous to say we have to learn from them. Uh, now, can I get it's, a big difference between us and the now and? You know, the, I think the people who wisely saw what was happening at the beginning of the Cold War, uh, you know, back in the late 40s, uh, was uh, our economies and societies are so intertwined in a way that they were not with the Soviet Union back then. It's easier to wage a Cold War in a way against the Soviets than it is in China in this respect. And I thought that was that might be the vulnerability with uh, uh Kraska's approach is that I think one reason we don't do all these things is because they would cost us a lot of money too. You know, the reason why we do things in North Korea and Iran, we can't put sanctions on Iran, North Korea, and Russia. 
because you know cutting them off from our world doesn't cost us that much. China, however, you know, is capable of against, retaliating against us economically, politically, and socially. It makes it much harder, I think, to figure out how to wage the kind of cold war that you're talking about. What, what do you think? I think you're exactly right. Um, and uh, if if you believe that the Chinese are the China again, when we say the Chinese, I'm talking about the Communist Party state, the government, <laughs> that not the people, that they are uh, that that this party state is as uh, Machiavellian and and competent and and far-seeing as as we often ascribe them in good times, you know, in terms of building up their economy and so on, then they may well have. Uh, seen that the way to avoid being held responsible for anything is to intertwine so deeply with us. I'm sure they also could not have imagined that it would go as far as it did. But at some point, you sort of realize that what you've done is is you have uh, essentially paralyzed the uh, the opponent, the other side, from taking an action that could harm you because it will harm them uh, it will harm them as well. This is why I think we are at a point where globalization needs to be rethought uh, to some degree. I mean, obviously, we can't unwind everything and no one wants to unwind everything. But you need to make yourself less vulnerable directly and less vulnerable indirectly. The directly is, well, we don't have the materials we need to fight coronavirus because they're all made abroad. Let's say, you know, the medicines, the masks, so on and so forth. The indirect is that, well, my gosh, we can't do anything hard against China because that'll harm us just as well. So we've we've been checked by China. I wouldn't say checkmated, but we've been checked by China. And we need to we need to get out of that thinking. That has been the last 50 years of US-China relations has been the, the, the first and all 10 commandments have been, thou shalt do nothing to upset the US-China relationship. And, and so that means that you can't do anything about that actual relationship, whether they steal from you, as James was talking about, uh, or, or they harm your interests or threaten your allies. We can't do anything to really upset the relationship because then we won't have the relationship, as opposed to saying, well, tell us exactly what that relationship is. And it just I find it I'm, I'm really deeply concerned. I hope others are that in the midst of probably the gravest crisis we're seeing in our, our lifetime or certainly one of them. You have such an absence of critical thinking and of clarity, moral and political clarity, that we are letting the Chinese get away with rewriting history. And therefore, the bottom line is we will be at risk again because they won't change. So I guess one last question is what can we do about it? It's interesting. I think uh, the way you're talking about it, it's not. Um, that we lack the ability and resources to do something about this. Like, you know, part of the fact that they're intertwined with us makes them also more vulnerable to things we can do, uh, especially the harms their political leadership and elites, such as the fact they send a lot all their children to the United States and Western Europe for education or, you know, that their businesses rely on selling into our markets just as much as we rely on selling into theirs. Um, so they are, in a way, made somewhat more vulnerable also in a way the Soviet Union wasn't. But um, what is it that you think we should do uh, now? Is it really, is it sometimes when you're talking about it, it sounds like it's more a question of uh, political organization or popular culture understanding, or are there specific things, uh, you know, in terms of military and economic policies that you would start doing right away? 
Well, it's, you know, it's a hard question. It's a good question. I think the most important thing is to change the mindset, because once you change the mindset, then you open up possibilities to react to all of those different types of things that you've just mentioned. And when I, when I say change the mindset, what I mean is to accept that this is an adversarial regime. This regime is not our friend. Uh, in fact, uh, Reuters had an unbelievable uh, counting of the of the Xi Jinping Donald Trump phone call in which they said that uh, she told the president he hopes she hopes the United States the United States will take substantive action to improve bilateral ties now uh, first of all, that's you know Reuters reporting, so who knows what was actually said. But that story gets out there, and that again shapes people's mindsets that the onus is on us. China should be shamed by the world. We cannot acquiesce in this propaganda campaign. We must tell the truth. Uh, and then I think once you have liberated yourself from this slavish following and dependency mentally and emotionally on China. It then allows you to say, you know what, we are going to enter what I hope would be an age of reciprocity. And we should have a longer conversation about this because people say you can't be reciprocal because that makes you like China. No, it doesn't make you like China. What it does is that it allows you to protect your interests. Um, Trump was doing a little bit of that when he decided to bring down the number of Chinese journalists in the United States because they don't allow our journalists in there. Uh, that's that is exactly the right thing to do. Uh, that we should not allow their Confucius Institutes if they will not allow our American centers on their campuses. Uh, that when they steal intellectual property, we will cut off their sources uh, of access to parts of the American economy. That those companies will be prevented from doing business, so on and so forth. I mean, it, the the point is the mindset John has to change, and until we change that mindset, we are going to be on the back foot being responsive and reactive as opposed to doing what should be done, which is that China has to take the substantive actions to improve bilateral ties and live as a civilized nation within the, the, the community of nations. I'm I'm uh, convinced. I just uh, you know probably uh, as 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 with uh, Kraska, I would probably be even more aggressive uh, than you. I really do uh, share your view that this is uh, actually. I think they've been waging something of a a war against us over influence and in politics. You know, their strategy is not to actually have a military confrontation until they achieve uh, some amount of conventional superiority in their region. Uh, over us. And so they've been very successful, I think, uh, what they've sought to do over the last 30, 40 uh, years. Um, but, uh, you know, again, as you say, maybe that's a topic for our next podcast. Exactly. Assuming I'm still here and I haven't been disappeared by the Chinese. <laughs> you can always hide out. You know, the thing with this uh, coronavirus thing is that it's very hard for them to find us because we're all hiding out. <laughs> and if they weather. come near me, I'm going to start coughing. It'll you. keep them away. <laughs> well, John, this was a great episode. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, your legal discussion with James was really enlightening. Uh, I think, you know, we do have to now consider the degree to which China, by the way, has freely chosen these actions. And therefore, uh, we need to reassess where we are and that and that I'm actually, unfortunately, very 
unhappily coming to the conclusion that this may well be a Cold War that we are now in, and one that is going to be a war of maneuver and a war of attrition, uh, and and one where we have to be careful that it doesn't turn into an actual war because emotions are inflamed uh, on both sides, but certainly the Chinese are the ones that always act irresponsibly in this case. So uh, let's come back. We'll, we'll see how everyone is in a week, and we will uh, reassess where we stand uh, with China. So for John Yu, I'm Misha Oslin. Thank you for joining this legal and emotional episode of The Pacific Century. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. Hoover.org.